The Water Values Podcast, Session 124. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibbs. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks so much for joining me. We have a fantastic show today. We have Burt Griggs, who's an associate professor of law at Washburn University. And uh, he does a I, just an absolutely great job. I, I was just uh, almost spellbound when I was listening to him uh, and, and his responses. He's gonna, we're going to talk about water conflicts between states. He's going to give us a rundown of uh, current Supreme, the current status of a number of Supreme Court cases, kind of talk about some uh, background and history on why states are starting to uh, have more and more conflicts over groundwater and uh, surface water and, and exactly what, you know, kind of, uh, he's going to talk about the relationship between groundwater and surface water a little bit. So I think this is really a fascinating, uh, fascinating interview. And Burke just does a, a terrific job uh, coming coming through with a lot of great information. But before we get to that, as normal, we got a few uh, housekeeping items. The first housekeeping item. Uh, thank you very much. We got a couple uh, couple more five star reviews this five star ratings this week when a couple of people left reviews. H two no. Uh, that's K-N-O-W underscore H2NO underscore uh, says, phenomenal show. I am a student of geography, hydropolitics, and water in general, and this is a phenomenal resource for anyone interested in water-related issues. Well, thanks very much, for H2NO. Really appreciate you uh, leaving that great rating and review. Uh, much appreciated. And also, uh, Janie479 left a five-star rating and a great review. She says exactly what I was looking for. I'm an economic student and I am interested in specializing in water scarcity. Listening to the episode on virtual water was amazing. I love the speaker and insight. I'm looking forward to learning more. So uh, Janie479, thanks very much for leaving that great rating and review. Really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who have not left a rating and a review, uh, please consider doing so. It's just a great great way for for, you you to kind of Tell folks why you like the podcast, um, and it, it just helps make them, you know, help, help helps other potential listeners uh, find us. So, would really appreciate you if you've been enjoying the podcast to uh, leave that rating and review, which is really important. And we're up to seventy-seven total ratings, uh, seventy-one of which are five stars, and so. Um, so let's make it a goal. I'm going to make it a goal to get up to 100 ratings, total ratings by uh, the end of 2018. And let's see if we can uh, keep our clip up of uh, uh, just, you know, more than, uh, let's see now, more than 90% of, uh, of the ratings being five-star uh, ratings. So uh, help me out. If you haven't done that, we just need 23 more ratings to go to get to 100 ratings and overall. And uh, we've got that composite, composite five-star rating, so please help me out and give a five-star rating. And if you're so inclined, and, and I'd greatly appreciate it, give a great review for me. Thanks so much. And uh, with that, let's get on to the interview with Burt Griggs. Open your valves, fasten the seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Burke, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. So glad you could take some time out of your day to join us. Uh, for starters, could you uh, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and how you got interested in water? 
time in Colorado. I grew up there. I'm a Colorado native uh, and went to college and uh, eventually became an historian. I got my PhD uh, in history and taught history at Boston College <clears throat> for about five years. And then I uh, slowly succumbed to a long festering uh, obsession with water that I think dated back uh, to the, the 70s and the 80s. Uh, swallowed my pride, went back to law school, <laughs> and uh, got a law degree specializing in water at the University of Kansas, and then uh, was in private practice for a while, uh, developing a natural resources practice, and then I got the opportunity to get involved with Kansas's interstate lawsuit against Nebraska uh, in 2009, and so I worked for the state, first at the Department of Agriculture and then at the Attorney General's office. Uh, largely on that case, but also uh, representing the state in Kansas's first uh, reserved water rights settlement uh, with the Kickapoo tribe. So I think growing up in Colorado makes you appreciate water, whether that's a conscious recognition or not. Right, right. And so what do you what uh, what are you doing these days? Well, I teach uh, natural resources law here at Washburn a Law School in Topeka, Kansas. I teach property to first-year law students, and I teach water and oil and gas, public lands law, uh, and agricultural law to uh, advanced law students. And I research and write uh, almost exclusively in the water law area. Good deal. And so uh, what I'd like to uh, tap into today is your knowledge about uh, interstate groundwater conflicts. And so could you, could you give a, um, you know, kind of a high-level uh, discussion or talk on, on – you know, where, what the state of the law is on interstate groundwater conflict? That's a big question. I'll do my <laughs> uh, uh, Most of the um, interstate relations in water are governed by interstate compacts. Uh, as you know, and probably most of the viewers of this podcast know, uh, there's the compact clause in the Constitution that allows states to make effectively treaties uh, about certain issues, whether they're boundary disputes, whether they're water disputes, whether they are issues of juvenile criminal law, these sorts of things, um, uh, interstate gas and oil pipelines. And these, these agreements, uh, once ratified by Congress, become statutes. So most of our interstate relations with water are governed by uh, interstate compacts. Uh, however, there are a number of... Uh, disputes out there that are not governed by compacts. Uh, the most prominent two right now uh, in the groundwater space uh, are the, uh, is the dispute between Florida and Georgia uh, on the ACF or Apalachicola Chattahoochee Flint River system, which begins up above Atlanta and flows into the Gulf. That is not governed by a compact, and that's, that's an issue of, of serious dispute in front of the court right now. There's also another interstate water case uh, between the states of Mississippi and Tennessee uh, about an aquifer uh, that is exclusively uh, groundwater. It does not uh, show up as a surface water dispute. So <clears throat> the 10,000-foot view is these are interstate disputes, and when one state feels sufficiently wronged, by uh, another state's alleged overuse or misuse of water, then the jurisdiction for that dispute is original to the Supreme Court of the United States. So it's an unusual uh, 
body of law in the sense that it doesn't go through uh, the typical federal court process. Now, of course, the Supreme Court is not a trial court. The Supreme Court only uh, hears appellate issues. So if the wronged or the, 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 the uh, uh, aggrieved state, shall we say, <clears throat> wants uh, to successfully prosecute an action, it has to jump a number of hurdles. First of all, it has to convince the court that the suit is of sufficient gravity and dignity that uh, the court should take it, unlike a typical federal lawsuit where that's not a burden. And then once the court, if the court accepts the case, uh, it will appoint a special master. A special master is generally a very well-experienced, uh, highly regarded uh, lawyer, uh, sometimes an academic, um, sometimes a judge, uh, a federal judge, who then serves as effectively the trial judge in the case and submits a report to the court and files that report with the court and then the court uh, allows the states to take exceptions to the report. Those, are exce those exceptions are generally in the nature of an appeal and then the, the states are given the opportunity to uh, uh, argue those exceptions uh, before the court, and the court reviews those uh, after oral argument and issues a decision. So some of these cases have uh, been relatively quick. The, the case I was involved with most intimately, Kansas v. Nebraska and Colorado, was by the standards of an interstate water suit fairly quick. Uh, we filed suit with the court, uh, filed our petition in, in 2010, uh, and had an opinion uh, by February 2015. Uh, <laughs> other, cases, other cases can take decades, uh, as you know. Uh, when Kansas sued Colorado in 1985, that case was not fully resolved uh, until 2009. Right, right. And so what, can, can I just get your impression of um, – uh, are th are these kind of original jurisdiction cases that are being filed? Are are they increasing in number, staying the same, or decreasing? Well, right now they're increasing. Now it's a pretty small sample set, right? Right, uh, right. We currently have a, a fairly large number of cases uh, before the court, and so the water bar is speculating: Is this a harbinger of increased litigation? Is this a statistical anomaly? I really don't know, but I think it is striking that the court has accepted some cases that perhaps the court would otherwise not be prudent uh, to accept. Uh, so, you know, maybe the court is eager to resolve some of these things. Um, and I do think when a state files on behalf of, you know, its citizens, that that petition is taken very seriously by the court. But uh, – whether we'll see more and more of these, I, I honestly don't know. I'd be interested in knowing what you and your followers think about that because uh, sometimes you can go quite a long ways, uh, quite a long time without a lot of litigation in front of the court. But uh, over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of cases across the country, you know, not just in the West either. I mean, I want to emphasize that we're seeing interstate litigation become increasingly important in the Midwest and the East and the Southeast. Uh, yeah. who, would have thought, who would have thought, you know, that a state like Florida uh, would be uh, substantially harmed 
by groundwater irrigation upstream in Georgia? Well, it certainly has been. Right. Uh, and I think that gets to some of the peculiar and, and interesting aspects of groundwater. Right. And, and, you, and you mentioned Tennessee, Mississippi, uh, as well as another kind of non-Western case uh, right. that, that that's going on. Um, well, let's let's you know, I, I think I my, my thought on the um, uh, the amount of litigation, I think, is consistent with yours. And, and my thought about what's driving that uh, probably partially influenced by your work is is uh, that as water becomes scarcer and people have recognized the connection between surface and groundwater, uh, it's given rise to kind of a new uh, a new theory, so to speak, of of harm uh, that states can can bring. And so let's l- l- you've done a lot of work with 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 groundwater um, and and the conflicts that arise. Uh, you know, in terms of can you kind of just frame up this uh, this relatively quick dispute? that you were involved with, uh, in the, in the Kansas, uh, litigation? Yes. The, uh, Republican river compact, that is a small groundwater fed river that starts in Colorado, flows into Nebraska and Kansas in various forks, uh, and then meets in Nebraska, uh, and then flows back into Kansas. Uh, that river was allocated by compact in 1943 Uh, just as other rivers in this part of the country were allocated during the 1930s and the 1940s. Well, by a fairly large historical accident, uh, just as the states are getting their act together to allocate their interstate water supplies, just as they're convincing uh, the United States to build substantial uh, water uh, supply infrastructure, reservoirs and reclamation irrigation districts, Uh, Within 10 or 15 years of many of these compacts being approved as statutes, the uh, technological advancements uh, that made groundwater irrigation possible started to come online. So that could have been – there were several things that that allowed this. There were uh, um, rural electrification uh, during the 30s and 40s that brought electric power uh, across rural America, there was the uh, centrifugal pump uh, that allowed water to be raised to the surface at rates uh, sufficiently strong enough uh, to irrigate crops such as corn. And so, David, within 15 or 20 years of many of these compacts uh, being approved, uh, groundwater irrigation starts hitting the United States on a regional scale. And why this becomes a problem later on is that the compacts, for the most part, don't mention groundwater. So Nebraska uh, was starting to pump more and more groundwater during the 1960s, uh, and then especially in the 1970s. Uh, Nebraska and California are the two most groundwater-pumping states in the country. And because groundwater is neither all that regulated under Nebraska law and groundwater is not mentioned in the Republican River Compact, Nebraska took a legal position that groundwater uh, was something that the compact didn't limit. Kansas took the opposite position. And so in my case, uh, Kansas v. Nebraska, but as with other cases, uh, Texas v. New Mexico on the Pecos, uh, most uh, importantly, the court was faced with an issue of contract and compact interpretation. To what extent is groundwater governed by the compact? And 
the court has consistently held that to the extent that groundwater pumping affects surface flows of interstate streams, then that groundwater is allocated by the compact. So the Kansas v. Nebraska case has gone through two stages. The first was between 98 and 2003. That case never went to trial because once the court held that groundwater was part of the compact, the state settled. And I can talk about that more if you'd like. The second stage between 2010-2015 was generally an enforcement action to enforce the settlement that the states had approved in 2003. Yeah, and so just to follow up on the kind of the first phase of that litigation, and you mentioned that essentially when the court ruled that to the extent groundwater pumping impacts surface water supply, it is therefore kind of within the ambit of the compact. Why do you think that kind of led to the quick resolution of the settlement or the first phase of that? I think one of the shadows that played a pretty big role in the Kansas v. Nebraska litigation was the experience Kansas had in its much more intense litigation with Colorado on the Arkansas, or as they call it in Colorado, the Arkansas River Compact. The states had in the Ark River litigation, the states fought very intensely over how groundwater models would measure the impact of groundwater pumping on surface flows. That was an epic trial, 270 days of trial. About 200 days of that trial was devoted to technical groundwater model issues. And so in the wake of that, with the Republican litigation, the special master's ruling was very, very clear that as a matter of compact interpretation, pumping that affected surface flows was part of the compact. And the states and the United States Geological Survey cooperated quite efficiently to respond to the special master's decision there. So they built a groundwater model, the Republican River Compact Administration model, RRCA model, that effectively follows the command of the special master, that it maps out the basin to measure the impact of groundwater pumping on surface flows. So I think that the scorched earth litigation of Kansas v. Colorado was a cautionary tale to subsequent litigation, certainly on the Kansas side. I can speak for Kansas, that a cooperatively developed groundwater model was a better way forward in terms of judicial efficiency to get to some sort of working agreement on how to measure the impact of groundwater pumping across the Republican River basin. Interesting. It sounds like a matter of the law following an economic path there. But could you, I want to get into some of the other groundwater disputes that are out there. But before we do that, I know you've done some work on kind of the politics of groundwater versus surface water communities and how this kind of new theory, as I indicated earlier, in terms of the groundwater impacting surface water 
you know, are, 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 I think that's very interesting. Could you describe that, that work that you've done to describe these, these two different communities and how they're related and, 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 and maybe if you have time at the end, kind of just place that in context in terms of yeah, how does that sit in terms of all this, 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 the rise of litigation that we're seeing? Great. Well, I'd be happy to. Um, obviously, I, I wouldn't write about this so much if I didn't find it interesting. But one of the most interesting things about the lawsuit I was involved with was a remarkable set of circumstances in Nebraska. The Supreme Court views these interstate water disputes effectively as very clean fights. It's the state of Kansas in its sovereign capacity suing the state of Nebraska in its sovereign capacity, the state of Nebraska counterclaiming for various things against the state of Kansas. So it's a situation where you've got Kansas and you've got Nebraska. There's this boundary line that was set way back in 1854, and that determines who's on which side of the litigation. Well, the litigation showed um, and I think we've seen this across the West, uh, and we can talk a little bit more about this with the Texas v. New Mexico litigation on the Rio Grande. But on top of that, or alongside that boundary, uh, the, the, way we, the way we assign uh, parties to a litigation based on their parent state, is what I think an increasingly more important boundary, and that is the hydrological boundary between surface water and groundwater. Because during the course of the litigation, irrigators in Nebraska who depend on surface water from Bureau of Reclamation projects, such as the Frenchman Cambridge Irrigation District or Harlan County um, and the Bostwick Irrigation District, which has lands, uh, irrigated lands in both Nebraska and in Kansas, surface irrigators in Nebraska were aligned with Kansas because they were concerned about the effects of long-term groundwater depletion caused by overpumping of groundwater, harming their long-term abilities to farm using reclamation water. So in an article I published in the Natural Resources Journal last year, I made the argument that this interstate fight between Kansas and Nebraska was in many ways the surface manifestation of a deeper conflict between groundwater irrigation and surface water irrigation across the basin. Right, and, and that's exactly what I find so fascinating. So I'm, I'm sorry, I just wanted to say that. So yeah. go ahead and continue. Go ahead and continue. I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I, 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 uh, yeah, hundreds of people have read the article. <laughs> we'll have even more, uh, but I can send you the citation if you'd like. Uh, and so it's it's. Where we, the, the reason I think this argument is important is because the age of compacts, the great age of compacts in the 1930s and the 1940s, when you had a combination of states that were really, really reeling from the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, and you had New Deal projects coming online, you had a massive federal effort to govern these interstate basins using federal cooperation, so cooperative federalism. So we see this in the Rio Grande Basin, the way in which the United States has dealt with its treaty obligations to Mexico on the Rio Grande, has dealt with reclamation's need for a stable water supply out of Elephant Butte Reservoir, 
the way surface irrigators in both New Mexico and Texas depend upon that reservoir amid competing demands for water from groundwater pumpers. So we see this in the Rio Grande Basin. We've seen this in the Pecos River Basin, the Arkansas River Basin, the Republican River Basin. If California were more than one state, David, <clears throat> imagine a state line somewhere, you know, between the Sacramento and San Joaquin River basins, you'd have massive interstate fights uh, within the state of California uh, over that. So I think it's an increasingly uh, important thing to think about, and, and it also goes to how states have set up their own legal regimes for groundwater and surface water. Uh, and so I, I think it's something we're going to see on a, a, a national basis going forward. Okay, great. You know, and, and um, in terms of, of, of why, that's, why that's manifesting now, I mean, do you have any further thoughts on kind of why, you know, why all you know, that was a, a really interesting history in, in terms of, of how, the, how we got to where we are. And is there a, is there a reason why it's coming to a head? At least it appears to be coming to a head now. I think there are a couple of reasons. <clears throat> I think one reason is that across a large part of the great plains, groundwater depletion is a increasingly intense problem. It is a permanent problem. We are dealing with a, a world of permanent groundwater depletion, uh, especially across the High Plains Ogallala Aquifer. So I think states are looking to interstate relations uh, within the context of that permanent depletion to protect their own interests. If you look at how severe Ogallala depletion is in places like the Texas Panhandle, in much of western Kansas, in eastern Colorado. Uh, these are all states that are very concerned about it, and I think that has raised the, um, uh, the focus, intensified the focus uh, on these issues. Elsewhere, though, groundwater irrigation is something that, as we discussed earlier, is, has expanded nationwide. <clears throat> if you drive, uh, say, in central Mississippi, if you drive through the Mississippi Delta right now, if you were to drive, say, from uh, the usual uh, stomping grounds where the Mississippi Delta starts in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and you come south through the Delta, through towns like Clarksdale and south to Vicksburg and elsewhere, you'll be amazed by how much center pivot irrigation you see. And that's because irrigation from groundwater allows irrigators to uh, map out their irrigation schedules and be much more precise than just depending upon the rain, uh, even in places that get a lot of it, like southern Georgia uh, or the Mississippi Delta. So I think it also speaks to how uh, the intensification of groundwater irrigation across the country uh, is raising unprecedented conflicts with the traditional and largely federal providers of surface water infrastructure. In the west, that's the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, west of the 98th uh, meridian, uh, east of that, uh, it would be the Corps of Engineers, which played a massive non-role uh, in the Florida v. <laughs> Georgia uh, litigation. Yeah, so, so that's a great way for us to, to, to kind of segue into, into current cases. So can you... Uh, Give us a little bit about Florida, Georgia, kind of what its status and this interesting role the the core played in that litigation. Sure. Well, uh, the 
three states uh, in this basin, the ACF basin, uh, worked on a compact and were able to secure a temporary compact for the Apalachicola Chattahoochee Flint Basin. But that compact lapsed on its own terms, uh, I think about 10 years ago, uh, maybe a little earlier. Uh, the states have developed a substantial enmity among themselves about how to manage this basin. And alongside that, there has been litigation by states and other water users against the Corps about how the Corps has managed the water supplies within this basin. Uh, most, intense, most intensely would be the litigation revolving uh, around the use of the waters of Lake Lanier, a core reservoir above Atlanta that supplies Atlanta with a lot of its municipal water supplies. So across this region then, there is a general dispute about water uh, and about water overuse. Uh, the state of Georgia, especially in the southern part of the state, has seen groundwater irrigation explode uh, by as much as tenfold in the southern part of the state. And that groundwater pumping has severely depleted flows into the Apalachicola River. And the reason that is such a problem for Florida is it harms Florida irrigators, but has also harmed oyster beds in Apalachicola Bay, which is one of the richest uh, estuaries and marine fisheries in all of the Gulf of Mexico. So depleted surface flows into the Gulf cause a lot of harm uh, to Florida oystermen and the, uh, the industries and the economies that rely upon that oyster fishery. And so Florida was forced effectively, I think, to <clears throat> sue Georgia in the Supreme Court about this. Now, the reason why um, the core is such a problem, uh, I say problem because they were not involved in this litigation. Uh, the core has more than a dozen projects, more than a dozen reservoirs across this basin that regulate surface flows into Florida. So even though Florida was able to sue Georgia and convince the special master that Florida had been harmed by Georgia's <coughs> overuse of groundwater, the special master in that case nonetheless held that he could not um, provide relief that would actually satisfy Florida because the largest governor of water use in the basin, the Corps of Engineers, was absent from the litigation. Why was it absent from the litigation? Because it enjoys sovereign immunity. And it stayed away from this trial. Uh, it stayed away, wouldn't get near it with a 10-foot pole. And the special master pointedly mentioned in his report that <clears throat> during the course of the three-week trial, uh, the Corps of Engineers did not even attend the trial. So this raises all sorts of difficult issues, David, about judicial efficiency. How can the state of Florida get relief? Uh, should the court have waited until the court had published its revised manuals for, for uh, managing water in the basin? Uh, some of us, and I'm one of those, uh, are starting to think about uh, and research and write in the area of to what extent could Congress pass legislation waiving uh, the United States' sovereign immunity in an interstate water suit? Uh, because this gets back to the original purposes of so many of these interstate uh, water projects, David, that 
Only the federal government had uh, the wherewithal and the resources to build these and to manage these. And so to have them not involved in interstate water litigation uh, is a real problem. Yeah, I, I, we could talk for, I think, uh, hours, hours on, on, on the case and, uh, and things like that. But I, I, in, in the limited time we have left, I do want to get to some of the other cases that are, that are currently going on. You've, you've mentioned Texas, New Mexico a number of times. Can you uh, give us the thumbnail on that one, please? The thumbnail on that is Texas has sued New Mexico uh, because New Mexico has claimed the right to withdraw groundwater in the area between Elephant Butte Reservoir, um, a reservoir, a reclamation reservoir upon which Texas growers depend, but it's located in New Mexico. New Mexico claimed that it had the sovereign right to, to allow groundwater withdrawals uh, in the stretch between Elephant Butte Reservoir and Texas, the Texas line, uh, and Texas sued. The United States uh, came into this litigation supporting Texas filed a motion to intervene, and on March 5th uh, of this year, uh, just last month, the Supreme Court <clears throat> um, allowed the United States to come in uh, and to pursue its claims on behalf of the compact itself. So what we have here is a very interesting situation where the court has allowed the United States, which is not a party to the Rio Grande Compact, to uh, come into this litigation to enforce the compact's terms, largely because its position is very similar to Texas's. Also, the United States has treaty obligations with the Republic of Mexico uh, under our compact uh, with Mexico on the Rio Grande. And because the Rio Grande Compact of 1938 specifically mentions the Elephant Butte Project. So I think the facts in this case are quite friendly to the United States' intervention because the compact makes it so clear and because of the United States's uh, treaty obligations with Mexico. Interesting. Okay, great. That, that, that's a good, good thumbnail on that one. Uh, the other case you identified was uh, Mississippi, Tennessee. Can you, can you give us the thumbnail on Mississippi, Tennessee, please? I'll try. Uh, <laughs> for about 115 years, uh, no, 100 and, uh, 111 years, uh, the United States Supreme Court has governed interstate water relations by the principle of equitable allocation. And the state of Mississippi filed suit uh, alleging that municipal groundwater wells in Memphis, which is right on the border of Mississippi, as you know, uh, were pulling water out from underneath the state of Mississippi. So the state of Mississippi filed this suit. The United States recommended that it not accept the suit. The United States accepted the suit anyway. And what is remarkable about Mississippi v. Tennessee is it effectively ignores 110 years of Supreme Court jurisprudence on equitable allocation. Mississippi alleges that Tennessee has committed trespass against Mississippi, that it has taken its water that it has violated Mississippi law, and that Mississippi is owed $615 million in damages as a result of this. To put this in context, uh, the, uh, the last time uh, the Supreme Court awarded damages was, in my case, $5.5 million for two years of noncompliance. The largest award has been Kansas v. Colorado, about $36 million for about 40 years of noncompliance. So $615 million is a lot of money. <clears throat> and the state of Tennessee and the United States has argued against these arguments of, 
you know, trespass and violation of sovereignty, that we have 111 years of jurisprudence. Kansas v. Colorado, 1907. Uh, Wyoming v. I'm sorry, Nebraska v. Wyoming, 1945. All sorts of cases, compact cases, decree cases that hold to the principle of equitable allocation. So that when the Supreme Court took this case, I think the water bar was quite surprised that they were going to give the state of Mississippi's arguments traction. That said, the special master issued his opinion last year asserting that almost certainly the principle of equitable allocation would govern in this case, and so that Mississippi's case should be dismissed. But with extreme caution, he allowed the case to go to trial basically on one limited issue, and that is, is the aquifer in this case the Sparta Sand Aquifer, which is part of a more complex seven-layer aquifer across this area of the United States, is that an interstate resource? And the United States Geological Survey has already done work on this, and the answer is pretty clear. It's an interstate resource. So we are awaiting how the court proceeds with this and how the special master will write up his second report in that case. But it's a wild case to think that in the early part of the 21st century, states can still successfully at least file suit with the court, bringing what I would call this atavistic claim, you know, this claim that goes back to the 19th century when states still thought that they had a sovereign monopoly on all of the natural resources that originated within their borders. The court put that to rest in 1907. It nailed the coffin shut again in 1922, Wyoming v. Colorado, and again in Nebraska v. Wyoming in 1945. But got to give credit to Mississippi. They somehow revived it enough to get a live suit in front of the court. Oh, that's, you know, Berg, you've been absolutely fantastic today. I've learned a tremendous amount from you, and the history angle on how we got to where we are, and I think it's just absolutely fascinating. So I want to really thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Before I sign off, is there anything, you know, do you have any kind of closing comments that you'd like to make on this interstate conflict in groundwater, or is there anything I haven't asked that I should have asked, or, you know, have I missed anything? Well, you know, we could do this for hours. We're both water geeks, right? I'm a fan of your podcast. But I think the thing that I would leave you with is how many states are now looking to groundwater as a way to meet their compact commitments through what's called augmentation. If there are decreased stream flows into a downstream state, one of the most popular methods by which to fix that problem if you're an upstream state is to pump even more groundwater out of the aquifer, but put that groundwater into the stream to compensate for depleted flows. So I think this is a problem going forward. If the cause of your noncompliance is overpumping of groundwater, pumping more groundwater to deal with that seems like you're treating the symptom of the disease rather than the cause. So I think you see this in the Pecos and the Republican River basins, and I think we'll see it elsewhere where a short-term engineering solution, pumping more groundwater, may in 15 or 20 years lead to more litigation. Yeah, good prognostication there. 
Uh, so, so Burke, for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work and, and uh, all the, all the things in, that they could find out about you concerning, uh, interstate groundwater conflict, where can they go to get that information? Well, two main places. Uh, the first would be the, uh, Washburn law website. Just get on, uh, washburnlaw.edu and you can click me. I'm somewhere on the faculty page and you can see all my publications there. <clears throat> the other place uh, I would send, uh, viewers is, to Stanford's uh, Water in the West project. I'm a, a non-resident fellow of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. I'm also affiliated with the Bill Lane Center for the American West. And so just Google Wood, uh, Water in the West, Stanford. Uh, Stanford's doing a lot of very interesting interdisciplinary work uh, on, on water generally, but also on groundwater in the West. So I think those would be the two places. And uh, you'll find out about a lot more work that's uh, – a lot more important than what I'm doing, but I'm just happy to be part of it. <laughs> Good deal. Well, thanks so much, Burke. Really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, David. You bet. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Burke Griggs. He was uh, just absolutely fantastic. I, I, I learned so much uh, from from listening to Burke, and he did a great job explaining uh, in in pretty good in, in pretty easy to follow terms, I thought uh, a lot of the intricacies of kind of supreme the, how the Supreme Court works when, in these conflicts between the states that 's something that 's bigger than just water law, uh, but he also gave uh, really interesting explanations for uh, you know kind of why groundwater conflicts are are on the rise, why conflicts over water rights between states are on the rise and uh, and obviously did a did a, a tremendous job uh, giving us kind of the status of several Supreme Court pieces of litigation you know uh, Texas New Mexico, Florida Georgia v Florida and uh, uh, Mississippi Tennessee so uh, if you have any uh, you know, comments, questions, uh, leave them on the show notes, which you can find at thewatervaluesdoc.com forward slash pod one, two, four. That's thewatervaluesdoc.com forward slash pod one, two, four. Or you can email me, uh, at David at the watervalues.com. You can tweet at me at DTM one nine nine three or tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. So thanks very much. Um, I'll just say one more time. I, know I probably beat it to death early in the sh- early uh, in the show. But uh, if, you, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and review. We greatly appreciate it. And thanks for, to those who have already done so. And with that, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. 
And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.